If you enjoy eating nuts, you're not alone. I go nuts over nuts. Some culinary nuts come in their shells. Peanuts and walnuts and pistachios come to mind, but not macadamia nuts. Macadamias are primarily grown in our 50th state of Hawaii. The nut itself is 80% oil, which accounts for its buttery texture. Its sweetness gives it a tropical taste. But you rarely see a macadamia nut in its shell. Why? Well, it requires some serious muscle to extract a macadamia. You don't just peel off the shell with your fingers. It takes a nutcracker with 300 pounds of pressure per square inch to open a macadamia nut, which earns for the macadamia the notable title, Toughest Nut to Crack. And we could ascribe the same title to the man we find at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Verse 1 reads, Then Saul. It is true that Jesus' resurrection was a life-changing event for many people, followers and enemies alike. Think of the 11 disciples huddled in fear behind barricaded doors. When Jesus needed his men, they were nowhere to be found. In the garden, in the face of the police force that arrested Jesus, they had scattered like pigeons on a city street. A boastful Peter had denied his Lord in front of a campfire girl. Though only John had mustered enough courage to accompany the women to the place of execution, you can bet all the disciples witnessed Jesus, at least at a distance, hanging on the cross. They saw him die, something they had all vowed they would never let happen. You remember the scripture says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He wasn't the only grown man who cried. And now the disciples are worried that they might be next. And yet something happened to these men. For just a few weeks later, we find them standing in the temple before the same powerful crowd who had arranged Jesus' execution. And they were boldly preaching that Jesus is Lord. He had conquered death. He had ascended to God. He is now on the throne in heaven and will return to judge all men everywhere. Something profound had convinced these disciples of these truths. You see, if they had not seen the living Lord with their own eyes, they would have still been hiding in the shadows. Despite the threat of their own persecution and ultimate loss of life, it was Jesus' resurrection that became their motivation. You know, there's a verse in Acts chapter 6 that if you're reading through rather quickly, you'll overlook it. Verse 7 of Acts chapter 6 speaks of life in the early church. The word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And notice this. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Isn't that amazing? The chief priests were the men who killed Jesus. Yet the empty tomb had such a compelling effect, a compelling proof, that it won over the staunchest skeptics. Realize to silence all the talk, to silence this Jesus movement, to end it in its tracks, all the enemies of Jesus would have had to do was produce a body. But they couldn't, for Jesus had risen. 
It was an infallible proof that even the priest couldn't sidestep. And this became the anthem for the first Christians. Men and women went out into a pagan world with nothing but faith and God's spirit and a message. This man, Jesus, had overcome death and had ascended into the clouds and was now Lord of heaven and earth. The Roman emperors claimed to be Lord, and they weren't looking to clouds. They had armies backing up their boasts, but these Christians stood strong in their faith despite the Roman emperors. Against great odds, at enormous personal sacrifice, they carried their message to the ends of the earth and after four centuries were in the books. Rome had fallen and Christianity was the religion of the empire. One religion sums up this great conquest. Whenever we go back to the key text for evidence of why the church persisted in such an improbable and dangerous belief, it is because Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Certainly, the resurrection of Jesus changed the lives of many, many people living in the first century A.D. But Rabbi Saul was not one of them, at least not at first. Saul was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. Many believe he was present at the trial of Jesus. Perhaps his lips had also cried out, crucify him. At the time, Saul may have been new to Jerusalem and not yet a a permanent fixture in the Jewish hierarchy. But in the three years since Jesus' resurrection, all that had changed. Saul was an ecclesiastical go-getter. He had climbed the ladder. He had worked himself into a position of considerable clout. And in Acts chapter 7, at the trial of Stephen, we're told those who witnessed against Stephen laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts 8 verse 1 reads, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Implied is that Rabbi Saul oversaw the trial and execution of the church's first martyr. And after Stephen's stoning, Saul was more insistent that Christianity needed to be stamped out. He was more determined to end this message that was being preached. You see, if Jesus was Lord, the temple religion that Saul had studied and that had pursued all his life would now be in vain. He could never let that happen. His goal was to protect the status quo, which is why we're told in verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You know, the original language is quite vivid. It describes Saul as a rabid animal stalking its prey breathing threats and murder. Saul was so resistant to the message of Jesus, he was determined to wipe out all who dared to proclaim it. In fact, his rage goes on the road. Verse 1, he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You know, in killing Stephen, he had hoped to stamp out Christianity. But all Saul had done was blown the head off the dandelion. For now the seed spread. Believers in Jerusalem move up the road to Damascus and start a church 140 miles northeast. Notice, though, how Acts 9 refers to Christianity. It's called the way. 
I hope you know Christianity isn't just a moral code or a system of beliefs or religious rituals. It's a way of life. The resurrection meant new life for Jesus and new life for his followers. Different from the legalism and ritualism of religion, Christianity was a new way of relating to God and people based on trust and love. This account in Acts chapter 9 is Saul's conversion, but I believe it began before his experience on the roadside. I believe that the way had gotten under Saul's skin. He admired what he saw in the Christians. How could he not? Their courage and their love and their joy and their sacrificial spirit. They obviously had the power of God. But how could they deny the traditions and trust solely in Jesus? Stephen had reminded the Jews that their God was bigger than their temple traditions. That God had always done new things. That he was doing something new in the world through Jesus. But this infuriated a conservative, a traditionalist like Saul. He refused to let God be God and change the rules. He hated everything Christian. And now he's out and about trying to stamp out all that proclaimed the message. Today, we would label Saul's attack on Christians and Christianity a hate crime. You know, several years ago, two Northeastern University professors They did a study on hate crimes in America. They concluded that 60% of the perpetrators are nothing but thrill seekers. They're just insecure people trying to be big, act macho. Another 35% of hate crimes are performed by turf defenders. In other words, they throw rocks at a house when a family of another race moves onto the block. They're just afraid of anything new or different. But 5% of perpetrators have deliberately built a false narrative, a false theology to rationalize their prejudice. In fact, they think they're doing God a favor by persecuting the group that they hate. These folks are the most violent and the most lethal. And this describes Saul. Blaise Pascal once said, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction." Saul was zealous for God, but his zeal was without knowledge. It's easy to hate what you don't understand. But that's about to change for Saul. This angry rabbi is about to make a new and surprising acquaintance. Verse 3. Well, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground. Some artists depict Saul on the back of a horse. The bright light literally knocked him out of his saddle. Whether Saul was on horseback or whether he was on foot, he was definitely riding on the proverbial high horse, that's for sure. It was a long fall to the ground for a proud man like Saul. He was headed to Damascus to knock off Christians. Instead, he's the one who now gets knocked off. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We'll learn later that this voice from heaven was Jesus. But notice what he doesn't say. Why are you persecuting my church? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? Realize to attack his church is to attack Jesus himself. 
you know, you can't pick on my wife without riling me up. And likewise, you can't hurt the bride of Christ without upsetting Jesus. He takes it very personal. Verse 5, And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And Whenever I read those words, Who are you, Lord? I think of one of my favorite John Wayne movies, Big Jake. I don't know what that says of me to admit that that's where my mind goes, but I think of Big Jake, the final scene. John Wayne, a.k.a. Big Jake, he confronts the wounded bad guy laying in the straw. This guy's about to breathe his last when all of a sudden he looks up and he asks, Who are you? And that's when John Wayne answers, Shake up my candles. The villain is surprised. He says, I thought you was dead. And that's when Big Jake answers, not hardly. Oh, you got to hear it. I got to show it. I love showing this. I love showing this clip. Who are you? Jake up my candles. I thought she was dead. Not hardly. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And that's how I hear this conversation in verse 5. Saul thought Jesus was dead. But big Jesus knocks Saul off his high horse and he says, Not hardly. And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know, Jesus was a common name in the first century. That's why it was usually qualified or specified as Jesus of Nazareth. But here, Saul isn't stupid. He knows who this is. This is the Jesus he's had issue with. This is the Jesus he's been persecuting. And Jesus says to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, goads were sharp pokers used to maneuver the cattle in the stalls. We would call them cattle prodders. Today, a cattle prodder is a pointed metal stick or even an electrically charged wand used to prod the cows, you know, in position. And this is a great analogy of the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives. Hey, resist the Lord, and he'll keep poking. He'll keep prodding you under the surface of your life, below the boil of your anger or your open hostility toward God. The Lord will keep poking, and he'll keep prodding, and he'll keep getting your attention. He's relentless in this way. He lets you know your life is not right. He lets you know that he has a claim on you and that he won't let you go. Saul was trying to stamp out publicly the very thing that was haunting him privately. He remembered Stephen's joy, his peace in the throes of death, the glory of God that radiated from his face. This was everything in life that Saul wanted. Yet Stephen had obtained it apart from Judaism. Stephen's Savior was the man the Jews called a blasphemer. And yet Saul couldn't shake his testimony. The Holy Spirit kept prodding and kept poking and kept getting him to consider Jesus. Usually we think of Christianity's most vocal critics, our most violent opponents, as the hardest nuts to crack. 
Yet in reality, these are the people who may be the closest to salvation. Hey, if they didn't sense God's conviction at all, they would be ambivalent or apathetic. But like Saul, their resistance is actually their way of kicking back against the goads. Well, verse 6 tells us Saul's reaction. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And, and here's proof of the genuineness of a man's conversion. The cry, what do you want me to do? You know, too many people start out their Christian experience with the demand. Lord, here's what I want you to do. But not Saul. It took only a few seconds with the risen Christ for Saul to realize that in this relationship with Jesus, it's the Lord who calls the shots, not him. In the presence of the Savior, Saul melts. He breaks. A proud man now trembles. He has seen the light. Jesus is alive. He's met him now. And if Jesus rose from the dead, it means that he is Lord of life, even Saul's life. Are you fighting against God this morning? You can't win. It's best that you surrender. And when Saul does, Jesus gives him his marching orders. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Notice, Jesus instructs us one step at a time. Have you experienced this in your own Christian life? Before I get step two, I first need to obey step one. Once Saul gets into the city, then he'll be told the next step. Yesterday, I met an amazing lady in Haiti. Her name is Eleanor Turnbull. She's 95 years old, and i got to tell you, she's as lucid as any 25-year-old. She has ministered in Haiti for 70-plus years. She's raised three sons in Haiti, she told me. One is buried on the ministry's property below her house there in Port-au-Prince. Her and her husband Wallace started the Baptist Haiti Mission, which includes churches, a hospital, satellite medical clinics, several schools, an ecological effort, etc., etc. Out of their mission, over 300 Haitian churches have been started. Eleanor is a highly respected person there in Port-au-Prince. I had the opportunity to eat lunch with her, and over lunch, I asked her. I said, Eleanor, do you remember when Jesus called you to Haiti? She immediately said, I remember when Jesus called me to himself. She paused for a few seconds, thinking before she spoke, and then she answered, God didn't call me to Haiti and to do big things. He called me to obedience. He said, follow me. I want you near me. I want you with me. And she spoke with such tenderness and yet such conviction. When she was done, there were tears in my eyes. She had summed up Christianity perfectly. For as with Paul, God calls us all to himself, to a life of obedience, whatever that might be. And then he gives us our instructions one step at a time. Verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one, 
But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. God's revelation to Saul worked like a camera. As soon as the light hit the film, the shutter closed. His eyes went black. And they didn't reopen until the image had had time to develop on the back of his brain. God blinded his new servant Saul. He gave him three days in the dark room so that the memory of the light of Christ would be forever etched in the back of his mind. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And by the way, Straight Street still exists, even in the modern city of Damascus. It's the main thoroughfare that cuts east to west right through the city center. And on this street, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And here's another another proof of a genuine conversion. Notice this, when you meet Jesus, guess what? You'll want to talk to him. You'll want to pray. Well, the Lord continues his instructions to Ananias in verse 12. And in a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias. He's seen you, Ananias, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Hear any reluctance in Ananias' voice? You bet. And we can understand why. This was like God calling a Syrian Christian today to pray for the chief imam of ISIS. That's exactly how the church at the time perceived Saul. They, They considered him a terrorist. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. How interesting that it was God who chose Saul, not vice versa. God chose him by his grace. And from the very beginning, God had a mission in mind for Saul. He would preach to Gentiles and kings and Jews. Everything about Saul's life prior to his conversion had prepared him for this God-appointed mission. Even while he was screaming and kicking against Christianity, kicking against the goads, God had his hand on Saul's life. The persecutor would eventually turn into its chief preacher. A Jewish rabbi would be used by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. God's purposes for Saul would prevail. And I don't believe anything gets wasted in God's plan for you and me. He uses everything in His preparation. Your education, your experiences, your years in the street or your years on the job, even what you felt at the time was unnecessary, perhaps even painful, your suffering, somehow gets redeemed in God's amazing plan for our lives. Saul was born a Jew yet raised in a Gentile city. He learned Hebrew and Greek. He was a Roman citizen and a Jewish rabbi. He was equally familiar with Greek culture and Roman law and Hebrew theology. He knew how to make tents. 
Yet he was academically schooled under the great rabbi Gamaliel. Saul could move easily among Gentiles and Jews, pagans and priests, paupers and princes, scholars and scrubbers. Saul was chosen and prepared in unusual ways. And the greatest irony of all was that the chief persecutor of Christians will be the most persecuted of Christians. Ananias tells Saul that before his life is over, he'll suffer much for Jesus' sake. God's hand was on Saul long before he realized who it was he would call Lord. Well, verse 7 tells us what happened when Ananias arrived. And he went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. I love that. I mean, what a token, what a tender token of God's grace. How encouraging it would have been for Saul to hear Ananias say, Brother Saul. His acceptance affirmed the Lord's forgiveness. And guys, this is what our fellowship does for us. When we come to church on Sunday and we get treated by other brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters, guess what? We become more inclined to believe that we really are, that we are brothers and sisters, that we are his kids, that we have been forgiven and included in his family. Well, Ananias then tells him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And no sooner had Ananias said it, we're told in verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples of Damascus. Immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? I mean, like a macadamia, the toughest nut had been cracked. The Lord Jesus had applied his 300 pounds of pressure per square inch. And what was a hard, crusty, stony sinner was now a sweet and tasty saint. It's interesting, for the rest of his life, this is how Saul, later, who was renamed Paul, thought of himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul records his testimony. He says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent or a disrespectful man, I obtained mercy. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. For this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. God set a precedent in choosing Saul. Literally, it was as if God reached His hand down into a bowl of human nuts and deliberately picked out the one with the hardest shell, a macadamia no less. He cracked it open with his fingers and laughed out loud, if I can crack this nut, (laughs) then I can crack any nut, including you. 
It reminds me of Joshua Blahi, a former Liberian warlord who once roamed the streets of Monrovia. Blahi came to power in the Liberian Civil War. He recruited orphan children from the streets to serve in his army. It's estimated that Blahi is responsible for 20,000 deaths. His killing spree and tortures were horrendous. Blahi would go into battle naked. He wore tennis shoes and he carried a machete. He would cut his prisoners into pieces and then eat the heart right out of their chest sometimes. His acts were demon-filled and demon-inspired. Prior to battle, he would offer to the local idols a child sacrifice to ensure protection. Blahi went by the name, and I'm not kidding, General Buck Naked. General Butt Naked. And the horror story of General Butt Naked took an unexpected turn in April of 1996. For a group of pastors decided to take action against the terror in their city. They did all that they knew to do. They started sharing the good news of Jesus. And one of the pastors, a bishop named Kun Kun, was chosen to speak directly to General Butt Naked. Kun Kun went to his Moravian compound, knocked on the door, and asked to speak to the general. During their first interview, the bishop says that Blahi spent the entire time cleaning and reassembling a machine gun. Kun Kun's message, though, was simple. He said to the madman, he says, All I want to tell you is that Jesus loves you and that he has a better plan for your life. Blahi said nothing. After praying for General Butt naked, the pastor left. Later, Blahi shot his bodyguard in the knees for allowing the pastor in to see him. But Bishop Kun Kun returned again and again. Blahi started to talk. The pastor learned that this was a man filled with fear, that Blahi was tortured by evil spirits and demons and wanted a way out. And a way out was the one thing that Pastor Kun Kun can offer him. Together they prayed. And General Butt Naked gave his life to Jesus and was clothed in the righteousness of the risen Lord Jesus. Today, like Saul, Blahi has become a preacher of the gospel. He says that he, if he's ever sentenced to a prison or to death for the crimes that he's committed, he'll accept his punishment. In the meantime, he's returning to his victims and he's asking for their forgiveness. I read of his conversion in, in a German magazine, Der Spiegel. It quotes one of his favorite verses, John 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. The, the author adds, Joshua Blahi has found perhaps the only religion that can forgive him for committing murder thousands of times, forgive him completely, and still recognize the greatness of its God in this act of forgiveness. See, Christianity is the only religion that glories in God's greatness through His willingness to forgive. God's greatness and grace makes Him amazing. The article ends with a quote from Bishop Kun Kun. God has the power to change anyone, even butt naked. Why does Christianity have this kind of power? Why is there no one beyond the reach of God's grace? It's because God's love is found not in a creed or in a ritual 
or in a set of rules, but in a person, a person who is alive and is still shining his light into dark places. We have a living Savior. His name is Jesus. A few years ago, I taught a class at the Calvary Chapel Bible College, and I had a student. His name was Mohammed. I'm sure you can guess by Mohammed that he was a former Muslim. Well, a number of years ago, he immigrated from the Middle East to Southern California. But life in his new surroundings didn't work so well for Muhammad. He started using drugs and he became depressed. One day he decided to end his life. And so he drove to a bridge near the ocean. His plan was to drive over the guardrail and into the water, just end it all. As he drove, he started crying out to God. He called on the God that he knew. Allah and the prophet Muhammad, but there was no answer. Finally, he heard another voice, a different voice that he had never heard before. It said, why don't you call on me to save you? He asked, who are you? The voice answered back, my name is Jesus. My friend Muhammad, he said that he was stunned. Never in a million years did he expect Jesus to speak to him. Well, somehow he turned his car around and he headed home. He said the next day when he awoke, things seemed different. The sky was clearer. His head was clearer. He said later in the day, he was walking across a parking lot when he noticed a fellow sitting on the tailgate of a pickup truck. This guy motioned for him to come over. Muhammad told me that in his culture, when a man gets your attention, it's because he knows you. But this guy was a complete stranger. And he said to Muhammad, I just felt like God wanted me to tell you that Jesus loves you and that he cares about you. Muhammad was floored. Jesus was talking to him again? Later, the same guy called Muhammad and invited him to a Calvary chapel. Muhammad told the guy that he was a Muslim, that he couldn't go into a church. But the guy asked him, he said, well, will you just meet me in the parking lot? For some strange reason, Muhammad agreed. When he got there, Muhammad asked if this was a church that believed that there was only one way to God, that Jesus is the only way. Well, the man answered him. He said, well, that's what Jesus said. He told us that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. Muhammad got angry. He couldn't go to such a closed-minded church, and so he left. Well, at the time, Mohammed was working the cash register at a local convenience store. And it was later that same day, he told me someone handed him a roll of bills. And he said he was unfolding the bills. He was putting them in the cash register when he noticed on one of the bills, there was an ichthus, you know, a fish symbol, a Christian symbol. And it was drawn on the bill around the word Jesus. (laughs) But it's not over. He said when Mohammed said that when he turned the bill over, someone else had written John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. (laughs) Mohammed said that's all the proof that he needed. It was then that he put his faith in Jesus Christ. The voice that spoke to him became his Savior. And over the years, I have heard story after similar story. That's why that today when I share the gospel and when I point 
someone to Jesus, I do so with confidence. I know I'm not selling pie in the sky. This is not mental gymnastics. These are not just pleasant thoughts. I know there is a risen Lord on the other end of the line who is prodding and who is poking and who is convicting and who is speaking to that person in his own way, but in a way that is clear. And this person is powerful. Jesus conquered the grave. Now there is no foe he can't defeat, no sin he can't forgive, no vice he can't slay, no heart he can't change. Jesus is alive. And his heart still beats with love for the man or the woman, the boy or the girl who has yet to soften and surrender their will to him. Jesus loves to crack nuts. And often he picks the toughest nuts to crack. And if he's picking you today, don't you ignore him. I hope you'll answer. Lord, what do you want me to do?